next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. I worked in a particular company and uh, I wanted to promote this young woman. She was doing excellently, she was in sales. I wanted to give her a regional role. And in that particular country, her husband would have had to sign off on her transfer. And for her, that was just too big a conversation to have. So she passed on that opportunity. When I came into Ghana um, in 2009, in the telecom industry, I was the only um, chief marketing officer who was a woman, right? Fast forward to 2016, three of the telcos were run by women. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is Uche Fordile. CEO of MTN Liberia, which has extensive expertise in building businesses in emerging markets. Before her role in Liberia, she was a CMO of Vodafone Ghana, involved in the transformation of the telco from a struggling business with deteriorating market share into the country's number two telco provider. She then worked as CEO of Tigo in Democratic Republic of Congo and transformed the business in 18 months. She built the strategy ignited 20% year-on-year growth. So Uche is somebody I will call the fixer, the corporate fixer <laughs> in the US. So it's a pleasure to have Uche here to talk about building businesses, transforming businesses, and being an African lady working at the sea level multinationally. So Uche, welcome to Building the Future. Oh, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's great to have you. Uh, I've had so many good stuff about you. And um, I really want to have you on this show to talk about a lot of things. And we're going to delve into that as much as possible. But I want to start with one of the questions that I have in my mind uh, with regards to female in top zeros in Africa. Mm-hmm. You've done this in multiple countries with great success. Or you're one of the, uh, what I would call the minorities doing this. So in your view, what are the institutional, cultural, uh, or economic barriers for women to get to that sea level, especially in Africa? So that's, I think that's a really good question. Um, well, first of all, I'll say that the, the barriers vary from country to country, right? So I think if I look at somewhere like Nigeria, look, the women are coming, right? There's, there are a lot of women, you know, we're still in the minority, but there's certainly a lot of women that are doing amazing things at the sea level in banks, in, you know, the telecom industry, FMCG, so many industries, right? And I've been quite lucky to... You know, I worked in Nigeria for six years. Um, there was a very senior woman who worked at uh, PZ Customs when I was there. She was director of co- corporate affairs. So there's so many women who have done that. Now, I think in DRC, for instance, it was a little less so in Ghana. I think that's beginning to shift as well. But 
the, the thing that I will pinpoint to that is, you know, people may laugh about this, but there's a globalism, you know, that's happening around the world, around it, even on our continent, right? Interesting. Well, yeah, I think one is the trend over the last decade or so, or maybe even before that, is that obviously you have a lot more women who are going to school. That wasn't the case maybe 50 years ago. You know, the balance was a bit different. But there are a lot more women who are, you know, being educated and actually beyond just getting their high school diploma or their university diploma, they're doing MBAs and PhDs. So there's that trend and that's a very clear trend. So there's more women in the pool. But the other thing is this thing around empowerment. I think as you see more women in these roles, more women aspire to be in those roles, right? And so, right. so you it's, see, it's the pathway for more women exactly. that can do this. I, I definitely think that. So, you know, I think it's a combination of two things. I mean, for example, you know, in my household, for example, with my dad, you know, there was never any question about whether or not I was going to try to aspire to be as senior as possible in whatever industry I chose. That was, it was an assumption. It was not like a sit down, you're a woman, and therefore you must do these things and make sure you aspire for this. You know, it was, we were all pushed really hard to do as well as possible. Was and your that mom also educated as well? It was yeah. Okay. yeah, yes, exactly. So, you know, my mom, uh, she's a, a Columbia University alum. She did her MBA there. She, you know, like um, when she was in university, she was pregnant with me. When she was doing her MBA, she was pregnant with my brother. So, I mean, you can't tell her anything. Like, it, I mean, you're not going to say to her, like, I can't do it. It's just, it's just not a conversation you can have with her, right? So there was always that expectation that you're going to do really great things. And I think for a lot of Nigerians, that's not an unusual story, right? Like, a lot of Nigerians are all about pushing excellence. So there's that. Now, if I talk about the other parts of Africa, I think it's this it, very much the same sort of conversation happening now. Women are empowered. And one thing I will say that is accelerating that is technology. You know, so you don't necessarily have to be in the corporate structure to excel. Actually, technology empowers you to do whatever it is that you dream of and to start your own business, to do all kinds of things and be excellent in that space. I'm really privileged to speak to a lot of women uh, through various initiatives. And you can see that they have fantastic ideas and they don't actually have to wait for someone to, to sort of explore. Yeah, exactly. To explore those ideas. They are very, the women I meet today, I'm like, wow, you would, you would put me to shame if I was coming up now because they're so ambitious um, and they're so focused on what they're trying to achieve. And with a little bit of uh, support and guidance, these women are going to be superstars of tomorrow. So my thing is, we're seeing some great things happening now. Wait till the next five, 10 years and see what happens. I think we're all going to be so shocked about how different the landscape is going to look as well. But are there still any form of institutional or, or cultural barrier as well? Uh, even though with all the advancement that these ladies are, are doing, are they doing it despite some of those cultural and institutional barriers? Or there has been some changes with, with regards to that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think let's not be naive, you know. <laughs> I think if you look at some of the statistics for Africa and even Nigeria, which I was just talking about, we're still talking about, you know, women membership to boards or even at the sea level sitting below like 
20% in some instances, right? So it's nowhere near where it needs to be. The point I'm making is that, you know, a lot has changed and I think it, it depends on industry. And I'll give you a very good example. When I came into Ghana um, in 2009, in the telecom industry, I was the only um, chief marketing officer who was a woman, right? Fast forward to 2016, three of the telcos were run by women. So, wow. you know, yeah, Vodafone Ghana, CEO, exactly. Vodafone Ghana had uh, Yolanda Cuba. She's female, obviously. The head of uh, Tigo at the time, Roshi. And uh, for Airtel, Lucy Quist. These were all women. So again, you know, I came in 2009 and it was a big deal when I became the chief marketing officer. It was like- the It, it was news. It was news, right. And then, you know, a few years later, Three out of four of the telcos were women. So, so it, it, it pays way for things like that. So they both can say, okay, we've got this person, this other one doing it, so that means we can do it as well. Or we can go. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's unfortunately sort of like a good thing and a burden, right? Because what it means is the first person to come through has to be excellent, you know, not to mess it up for the next set of people that, you know, can come in. So if you come in and, uh, you know, as a woman, and this is not necessarily right, but it's just as it is today. If you come in as a woman and people see that you're doing an amazing job, then no one thinks that it's unusual anymore, right? And so they're willing to do that. They're, they're more than happy to do that with other women, you know, but what I've seen also happen is like, you know, they give in quotations, a woman a chance, and I say in quotations because it's not a chance, she was qualified, right? Yes. And if for whatever reason that doesn't work out, then it's like, well, we tried. Yes. We tried and it didn't work, you know? So there's still a lot of that going on. And until we get to sort of a critical mass point where it's kind of more balanced, you know, mm. then we stop having those kind of conversations. And those things so, happen, you're going, yeah. You're about to no, 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 so I, was, I was just coming back to your original question. I, I don't think by any means we're near any, you know, we're anywhere near where, where we need to be. But the point that I was making is that, you know, there has been progress. We still need to push for a lot more. And, you know, the thing that I do say to women as well, as much as we're going to push, so, you know, I'm a strong uh, proponent of, you know, making a lot of noise about having more women on boards and all that. But I also want women to feel very empowered to make sure that their voice is heard within their organization. I mentored a woman when I was in Ghana who, she was in technology, she wanted to move out of technology and she wanted to do something else commercially in the business. And uh, she was just quiet about it. She just sat back. She was unhappy in her role. And I was like, well, who have you told? And she hadn't spoken to anyone about it. And I sort of said to her, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Join this project that is non-technical so that people can see that you're passionate about to do this, do that. And within a year and a half, she had moved out of her technology role into a customer service role. And she's quite happy about that. So as much as we have a lot of work to do, and I say we, like men and women, you know, at senior levels to try and push this agenda of diversity, because diversity is hugely important in any organization. The, the statistics are there. That diversified organizations perform better. So it's in your business interest to do that. But I want women to also be a huge part of the conversation, which by making sure that their voices are heard, by feeling very empowered to put their ambitions on the table, not feeling that 
if I say I want to do this and it's like, she's too aggressive, no one cares. Like you have to, you have to say that. You, we don't ever say a man is too aggressive or he's too ambitious or he's too assertive. We don't say that. So we should stop feeling that that's what people will say. And even if they do, it doesn't matter. Let's, let's put our voices on the table. Let's be heard. Um, and let's take that sort of journey from there, you know, from that point. Yeah. And that's one of the pieces behind um, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Mm-hmm. Uh, where she encouraged women to actually put their own interests forward and actually push uh, their own agenda in their career or, or, or lean in, as she put it. And mm-hmm. Maybe it might be culture, not, not culture, but maybe it might be a woman thing to probably be selfless in some way, mm-hmm. think about others before themselves. I don't know, but I don't think this... I'm not sure whether that is the case, but I think one of the reasons, and there may be some cultural expectations about women not to be forward. Yeah. A good example is, so we're doing this program, the also boot camp, and we decided to give out, or we got somebody to sponsor a free ticket for people to come and join the course because the course is paid for. And then we released that. So, okay, we have free ticket. You can apply for it. If you have an idea, you have a good business, and we're going to look at your application. And when I saw the application, mostly were guys actually, who were applying. Mm. Some of them are not, they didn't really run a good business. And I saw that there were fewer ladies there. And I was very conscious about that because I knew that there's so many entrepreneurial ladies who are doing fantastic work. So I had to send an email to some of my friends who I know mentor ladies. Can you please recommend more ladies to, to apply for this free scholarship mm-hmm. that we're giving out? Because it was just the guys that was they wanted to take advantage of all of it. So it might be that a bit of expectation about women that you don't ask for us, you don't, you don't, ask, you don't ask for things sure. that really belongs to you. There's something that I want to uh, hang on that before we move to the next topic is in one of your blog posts, you talk about getting support from partners, so ladies getting support from partners to help married women to grow in their career. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing that always struck me in that type of conversation is the one-sidedness of it in the sense that it appears to be easier for married men to make career move dynamically uh, with <laughs> more than women. They don't have to consult too much. Uh, so in, in Sherry Sandra's book, she kind of made an argument that, against that notion that women are expected to plan their lives and their career around men, basically. Men, yeah. And, and I understand that women, because they are mostly the primary caregiver, in the home, mm-hmm. they have to think about that. But it seems to extend beyond that in some places where a woman should think about a career move in the context of even a man that she has not even married yet. Correct. <laughs> Why is this? And, and how can it be helped that a woman can actually get a job in Togo, Cameroon, and, and move to Australia and think about that as a career move and, and her husband can join her? Uh, yeah. It seems to be out of the place. <laughs> so what do you have to say to that? So first of all, I mean, by no means will I say to you that that's been an easy conversation for me either, right? So, you know, it, you know, a lot of times when I write my blog posts, it's because of experiences I've had, right? And the thing is this, there's one thing, and, you know, we don't listen to our parents, I think, sometimes as we're growing up. We think they're nagging us. But there's one thing I remember uh, when I was growing up. You know, every time my mom would tell me to do certain things, I'd be like, well, you know, what did... I, I'm not married yet. Why should I do this now? And my mom's like, okay, do it first. And then when the husband comes, you worry about it, right? So she, she always sort of put this thing in my head about, you know, make sure you're making the right decisions for yourself. And then you're going to attract the person that wants to fit into your situation versus you trying to build a life for someone who's not 
even there yet, right? So that, so, and that I cannot tell you that I actually listened to her when she was saying that to me, but it must have always been in the back of my head that, you know, you need to get on with your life and you will find a partner that fits within your situation. So that's number one. As women, we don't think about this. As African women, and it's, it still happens, right? You know, people meet you. Are you married? Are you not married? Are you a missus? Are you not a missus? This is still very much part of our conversation. So there's still a lot tied to being a married woman. So you can understand that that's very cultural. But I think the thing is, and, and what I said in my blog post is, as women coming up now, so I'll talk about the married women in a minute, but as women coming up now, it's super important that you're clear about where you're trying to get to in life. Like, are you, do you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you want to, is your ambition to become a CEO and all of this? And understand what that takes today probably means you working crazy hours, probably means you working in other countries. There are very few companies today who will appoint a CEO who has not had some sort of international experience because they want someone who has a global perspective, right? So it probably means that. And so you have to be sure that if you're dating or if you have a fiance or or whatever it is, or, you know, you're about to date, like people have a very clear understanding of what your ambitions are and what that takes. Now that may scare away some people. Some people might say, oh, this is great. I want to be part of it without necessarily really understanding what part of it means. Yeah, exactly. But the important thing is to have those conversations up front because you're absolutely right. Now, I won't mention the country, but I worked in a particular company and um, I wanted to promote this young woman. She's doing excellently. She was in sales. I wanted to give her a regional role. And in that particular country, her husband would have had to sign off on her transfer. So it wasn't just a conversation with her like, hey, are you interested? In doing this, it wasn't just about her having a conversation with her husband. It was also permission. Permission? I, I thought that, yeah. Is that legal see, or cultural? I think in that particular country, it was legal. So there was something, because I think even in that country, like for a married woman to have a passport, you know, they, the husband had to also co-sign off on that. So, so some of it cultural, some of it, I think, also legal. And for her, that was just too big a conversation to have. She could not see herself having this conversation with, with him. She felt like even though that was something she really wanted to do, she just could not see herself having that conversation. So she passed on that opportunity. Wow. Which, you know, yeah. So, so there's a ceiling to our career because of... This is because of her personal. So it's not, you know, here I was looking to promote her and give her additional responsibilities, but she just could not see herself. And, it, and by the way, um, we're talking about this country like it's, you know, oh my God, I can't believe this country is doing that. I can tell you like even in countries in Africa that are seen as more progressive, there are women who are unwilling to take roles in other countries because they think that that's too big a conversation to have with their husbands, right? So it's not that the business is saying we're not, you know, there's a glass ceiling, we don't want to move you up. It is also some of the personal stuff that's preventing women from taking on this conversation. So it's hard. It's hard. And I use myself as an example. Like at the time I got married, um, like maybe a few weeks before I got married, this conversation with another company started and we didn't know where the conversation was going. And then they told me like, hey, you know, we have a CEO opportunity for you, which is what I was looking for, but it's in DRC. And um, 
So I had to have that conversation with my husband. And luckily for me, you know, he was very supportive of it, but we didn't understand the implications of that, right? So, you know, we were like, yeah, this is easy. DRC Ghana, you know, it's not that far, you know, we'll see each other like every other month, all this other stuff. But that was really difficult because, you know, it it was not every other month and it's not that easy to fly from Ghana to DRC. You know what I mean? And you don't realize the extent of how involved you are as a CEO. Like you're never off. You know, it's you and you have to make sure that the business is doing well. So you're constantly in that space. That was really difficult. Would it have been the same if it was the other way around? If it was your husband who had the CEO role and he has to move to DRC, Mm -hmm. you were also equally busy like your husband is in Ghana and you couldn't just move with him immediately like as well. There's there's a couple that I, I speak to all the time right now. Her husband uh, has taken a role elsewhere. So they're from Ghana, right? Her husband has just taken a role in the, somewhere in West Africa. She's, you know, a very senior person in a company in Ghana. And she was very supportive of, you know, this new job that he was going to take on. It was a super opportunity. But he was also understanding that the whole family could not just pack up and move to this new country with it, right? So they're living in two different countries. And they've decided that it was important for them to support each other's careers in the short term, short to medium term. Um, You know, while they both figure out, you know, what the next step for them as a family is. But the great thing is that they understood how important it was that this opportunity was for each of them, right? And so no one had to sort of sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice is that you're not seeing your husband every day or you're not seeing your wife every day and the kids don't see you as a unit every day. But, you know, there are ways to cope. It's not the most ideal of situations, but, you know, what she asked me, I said, you know, FaceTime is going to become your best friend, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, you make use of that and, You travel when you can, and it's not the most ideal of situations, but it's a way to sort of manage the opportunity for each person. And more and more, the opportunities that we get as women uh, to lead companies is extremely important. And we want to make sure that those opportunities are being fulfilled and that, you know, we don't feel as though I cannot do this and have a family. Sometimes these choices are very real, but sometimes the choices can be managed and instances where they can be managed, you know, I advise that women do that. So it's not either or, like many people would like to put yeah. it. Uh, if you want to be a top high-flying CEO, then you have to give up family, um, which you're trying to argue that you can actually do that. And from what I'm hearing as well, there seems to be a lot of role to play by the men that are supporting that kind of woman. And they also exactly. And other men around as well to say, we exactly. as an husband, I will actually sacrifice as well to make sure that you actually fulfilled your own ambition and role. Is that, yeah, is that and, and this, this is what I'm saying, but I think the point I want, and it's not a very sexy point, but the point I want to make is as women, we, we need to be a little more, it's not romantic, but it, we need to be clear in our choices of partners, right? Because the example I always use, and I, and I know it sounds very romantic, but I, I don't see the two as separate. Like you, you can love somebody who's going to support you, right? You, don't, it, you know, love is not just about, you know, I just like this person and he's cute and all that. Like you can love somebody who is going to make your journey in life great, right? Yes. So I tell people that if you were going to buy a house today, 
which is like, you know, it's an investment. You see that as an investment. You come, you check the neighborhood. Okay, are we going to have children in the future? Fine, we don't need a two-bedroom. We need a four-bedroom. Okay, does it have garage? Because I'm going to buy a car. Okay, uh, do I like the color? You think of all of these things that are not necessarily for your immediate. It's also about what the house will do for you in the future. And the schools and stuff. And the schools and all of that. And then you, you bring the contractor to make sure everything is working. This is the effort you put into buying a house. This is the effort you put into buying a house because you know that this is a long-term commitment and you're probably going to have this house for 25 years and you want to make sure it's the right decision. You have to do the same in choosing your life partner because you know, you, you know that your ambition is that you know at some point I want to be this and I'm, I'm going to be ambitious and I want to do all of this and I want to, I want to have kids, but I also want to, my, my career is so important to me. So why would you not make sure that you're choosing a life partner that is going to support that. Right. So that's the way I, I, I get, I get that. Why <laughs> the argument could be that's not romantic. That there's no spontaneity in that. Where's the place? Oh, well. Being <laughs> I just love him. And then we can, then we can figure things out as we go along. It's like okay. It's <laughs> but, but my argument would be that you would never just buy a house that you saw online because it looks beautiful. Right? You would never just say, oh my God, this house... It's beautiful. It's pink and it has a swimming pool. I love it. Send check. And then you get there and the house is pink, but it's not as pink as you thought. And the pool is broken. And actually, it, you need to completely renovate the house. You would never do something on scene, right? But you would, of course, there's an element of risk anyway in any relationship that you get into. But why not just make sure it ticks certain boxes to make your life easier? And I know that does not sound romantic, and maybe I'm speaking as an older person now. But, um, you know, that's usually my advice uh, to women. Like, let's be more careful about how we're choosing life partners to make sure that we have an understanding. It's not just about the women. It's also like understanding what your partner is looking to do in life and whether or not you would be the right fit for that as well to make sure that because decisions today are not just about, you know, back in the day, way, way back in the day, you know, men chose women because she would be a good mother or, you know, whatever. That's not the decision-making process any longer. And we need to reset our expectations about how we're choosing a partner, especially as we're looking to be on this career journey as well. Yeah. Let, let us move on and talk about you. Um, and there's a whole lot to talk about. You grew up in the States and then you moved to Nigeria. I want to ask about how that happened, why Nigeria and the time that you moved to Nigeria. Well, let's talk about your your background, your parents. And your mm-hmm. parents mm-hmm. are Nigerians who lived in the States and we moved to the States in the 60s. And you and I were talking about this before we came on here, about your parents getting married during the Biafran War, which yeah. is quite interesting. <laughs> Marriage during yeah. the war, and then they moved to the state during the war. How did that happen? How did they even get out of Biafra? To- oh, wow. I mean, it's, a, it's such a fascinating story. I think as I've gotten older, I'm so, I'm so much more interested in, you know, my family's history. And so um, a couple of summers ago, I, I said to my parents, I wanted to start to map out, you know, like my grandparents and my great grandparents. It was, it was around the time that my grandmother passed away. And, you know, like I didn't see my grandmother often enough, but 
I was always so fascinated whenever I would go to her house and see all these old pictures and I would ask, who's this, who's that? You know, so I, I was very interested in this. And so, you know, last, a couple of summers ago, I started to ask my dad, like my parents, how did you guys meet? Um, how did you guys get married? You know, all of this. And so they told me a story about how, you know, my dad was already in the States. My mom was still in Nigeria. And, you know, my dad came back uh, to Biafra, yeah, I think, one wanting to to help and support, but also wanting to sort of settle down a little bit. And uh, his uh, family and my mom's family. Yeah, his, that was during the war. So he students and uh, an Nigerian student studying mm-hmm. in the U.S. hearing about the drama of war. Oh, that's going on exactly. And, and then everything in the news was showing a lot of bad stuff happening, and he can identify some of the villages that were being bombed. Yes. It must be tough. And then going back. Exactly. And also, don't forget, like, it's not like now. There was no telecommunication. There was no sort of internet. You know, so a lot of things that you heard were like fourth and fifth stories, right? Not, not necessarily you actually hearing firsthand. Um, but he, he went back and um, their families were friends. And so I think they met again in the sense. And my dad said, this is a woman for me. And so I think they tried to very quickly sort of arrange um, marriage. Now, two things. One is, I think at the time that they were looking to get married, my grandmother, she had uh, gone to the market, but not in the village, like outside of the village. And she hadn't been back for a few days. So there was all this uncertainty about whether she was alive, because even though my parents' village had not been bombed, but there was obviously activity going on outside of that. So no one was really sure about what had happened with her. Eventually she did come home, so she was fine. But um, my dad t- said to me, like, you know, the only uh, planes out of Biafra at the time were cargo planes. So if you were looking to leave the country, you'd have to go with a cargo plane. But it was, you were never, you were never 100% sure if the plane was going to take off or not. So you would have to go to this place and sort of huddled and waiting and to see if... Yes, in the yes. cover of the night. And right, waiting to see if the plane would go or not, if it was going to land or not, you know. And I think they did that a, a couple of times and then they finally flew out to Europe. So it's such an amazing story because I never even knew that. So, you know, you just know all your parents were married. But I realized I never saw any wedding, you know, proper wedding pictures like at a church or anything. So then I started to say, how did you guys get married? And, you know, all of this. And, and this was the story that was told. And they were married um, in the village, you know, but it was obviously a very small ceremony. And then they took off trying to get back to the States. And it was just this sort of cat and mouse game of like, is the plane leaving? Is the plane not leaving? Is the plane wow. leaving? Is the plane not leaving? And then um, they left. And my, and my parents were really young. I can imagine that for my mom, that was such a big change for her as well. Yes. You know what I mean? Like um, leaving an environment where obviously there was this war situation going on and you're leaving your family behind and, you know, going to, to the United States. And there's no way to necessarily communicate to find out how people are and all of that. And that, I think, you know. That's tough. That's, that's tough. tough I, 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 I just got married. I know, exactly. And I, I say to her, she's so resilient, you know, um, to have gone through that. Because when you, I mean, when I got married, I knew my wife joined me as well in the UK, and I knew what it means to leave some of the social network and structures and support that you have mm-hmm. to come to a new country. 
But then it's even yeah. harder for your mom because she's not, not just living a social structure network. She doesn't know what is happening to those people, whether they've been bombed. No, exactly. And she can see exactly. the news, New York Times talking about genocide in Biafra. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently, like, What's going on? Yeah, and I, th- I, mean, I mean, my parents' story is very fascinating to me, and I'm going to explore it more. I certainly know that their story is one of many stories, right? So, but people, I think they were so strong, you know, people from that era, like to have gone through that and to still come out of that, you know, um, hugely successful, you know, she, as I said to you earlier, she went on to her MBA out of Columbia University. She has four children. They're all doing really well and all this. And, and the same for my dad. So I look at, there's no way you look at that and you're like, I'm not going to do something with myself. Like there's just, that conversation is not happening, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, you asked me about my background. That's my background. Yes. I wanted to segue from that into you then coming to Nigeria. Because you grew yes. up in an immigrant family in the States. Yes. And yes. most of the time, the notion is that we came here and we settled here as a parent so that you can have a better life as an American. So that you can, most of the immigrant family will tell their children that. And then it's yes. always strange if that child decides, I'm going back to Nigeria. And it may be a difficult conversation sometimes. I don't know whether that was the same mm-hmm. or was it deliberate to say, okay, yeah. I'm going back to Nigeria. Well, I think, first of all, I think um, if you were to ask my parents, I probably was the last person that they would expect to be here period, right? Because I was always like during the vacations when they would say, let's go to Nigeria, I'd be like, oh, why? You know, like I would complain and all this stuff, being a, a child and just being stubborn. So there were two things that happened. One is I got married to a Nigerian guy and he was based in Lagos. So there wasn't much choice in me coming to Nigeria. But it was, it was interesting because i never forget this day. I came back to Nigeria. I got married. I started working for Econet Wireless. Did you get married at, in the States or got married when you moved? No, oh, got married in Lagos. I got married in Lagos. And um, at the time I got married, I was still living in the States. So I got married in Lagos, went back to the States, packed my things and came back. But I think a couple of things, right? I was working for Econet Wireless and I just found it was a lot. It was a lot of transitioning happening at the same time. So I was, you know new job, new company, you know, new work culture. And on the personal side, it was like living in Lagos and um, like being married. So there was so much change going on at the same time. And I remember, (laughs) this is going to make me sound so funny, but I remember at the time, GSM was just starting. So this is around 2001. And um, I just remember one day going to call my parents because it was still extremely expensive to call the United States. And they, we, we still would call the States from call centers, right? So, yeah. yeah. So I went to this call center and uh, I called my parents. And as soon as I heard my dad's voice, I started crying. I was like, I want to come home. And he was like, <laughs> what, are t- <laughs> what are you talking about? You're married. <laughs> No, but it was, you know, it was, it was, I found the transition. It was, I I always tell people that from a career point of view, I started to grow up when I started working in Nigeria because it really toughened, I think all of that transition happening at the same time really toughened me up. What was hard about the transition for you? 
I, th- I just think it was just a lot of change at the same time. I think most people, you know, they move to a new country for a job, right? And that's it. That's the new thing for them. Or they've just gotten married and that's a transition in itself. But I think all of this was happening all at the same time. And probably at the time I was feeling a bit overwhelmed. But, um, you know, luckily, I think I sort of found my rhythm and it was great. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, working in Nigeria meant that I felt comfortable in my skin. You know, I, I talked about this. Uh, I, I did a speech maybe a, a few months ago um, to Ghanaians who were looking to move back to Ghana. And I said, the one thing that you underestimate is what it means to be amongst people who look like you, right? And who are like you, right? As opposed to sort of being in this world where there's so many, you know what I mean? Like there's a comfort um, that you don't realize you're missing when you're in Ghana or Nigeria. And everyone, you know, everyone looks at you and expects excellence. You know, no one is shocked that you're great at your job or anything like that because, you know, it's expected and you're amongst people who sort of have not similarity in backgrounds, but similarity in terms of expectation. Which and is so, a feeling for people that grew up the, or that worked in a country where they're minorities, so like in the States, yes. UK. Like, exactly. And it's a unique feeling that a lot of people in Nigeria don't see because you have a different perspective of, I would not say racism, I would say a discriminated view of you as mm-hmm. a person mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. of your intellect. And mm-hmm. even though it might not be obvious in some places, but there is that uh, veneer that covers you whenever you walk into a room. Exactly. And Nigeria, you don't have that. Or in Africa, you no. Know, just it's you. like they just expect that, right? So it's, it, you know, all of a sudden, it's like there's there's a comfort from that, right? And so I think it allows you to actually be yourself to some degree. You know, like when you work in the states or in Europe, you know, like there's a sort of cloak you put on when you walk into the office. You have to, right? You can't just be, you know. And, and of course, that's natural. You can't, you don't behave the way in the office that you do at home, of course. But, you know, there's, there's this additional sort of cloak that you put on, especially the more senior you are in the organization, where you're, you have to be a little bit careful. But, you know, here you can be very bold and you can sort of express your ideas without fear of being questioned. I don't know, I don't know how to really articulate this well, but I think that's, that's the piece that I found very rewarding when I moved back in Nigeria. It was unexpected. Um, And I think for me, it really helped me build my confidence more and more uh, professionally. Um, And, you know, the rest is sort of history. But yeah, I decided to stay and people, I think, so the couple of things that happened to me when I was in Nigeria, so I I said I was married. Um, While I was in Nigeria, my husband fell ill. And um, we had to leave for a while and uh, we came back and he passed on. And that was in 2004. So I was at a, at a crossroads at that point in time. It was like, you know, actually, you know, I, a big part of me was like, you know what, I'm just going to move back to the States. You know, my family is there, my brothers are there and, you know, my friends are there and I can just sort of get back to the life I know. Yeah, I must be a um, trying period for you to have. Because when it's one of the most, it's the self-reference point for you. Mm-hmm. And then it passed. Yes. 
Passed on. on. It, that that was you talking about your parents being resilient. You, are, you, are, you are, <laughs> yeah. Does anyone even no, know I, that about you? Oh right, yeah. No, it's not out there like that. But yeah, I think you know, I came back to Nigeria to, as I said, after the wedding, and nine months later, he was diagnosed with his illness, and we had to leave immediately so that he could uh, get treated. And we went through this whole process of his treatment. And then we came back uh, because there was not much else they could do for him. So he passed on soon afterwards. And yeah, I think anyone who has had to take care of a loved one with a terminal illness, that is absolutely life-changing. Yeah. You know, like you cannot, no one can tell you anything about it. It is life-changing. It it's, is. It's, it brings out things in you that you never knew existed. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And also you learn to be selfless you know, for sure, because, yes. you know, you, you, you're putting everything into trying to make sure that this individual, this person that you love is okay, right? So it becomes we, self-res- it becomes exactly. everything you're obsessed with. I, my mom spent exactly. last year with me when she, before she passed on and she came to the UK and she had cancer and she spent the last, the last year, about a few months before she died. And I knew what that changed in my I never exactly. knew about her as I was. And the other time I felt that was when I had my child and I felt I can exactly. express this kind of emotion and this kind of self-esteem. So I get what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's very tough as well. And even after it is it's tougher. It's it's all and it's it stays with you. You know, it, it never actually leaves you. I mean first of all during that period where you're taking care of your loved one, you're sort of in an arrested development. You personally do not move forward, right? Because all of your energy is put into this individual. And I don't at all regret that decision to do that. But, you know, like you just, it, it, you're so sort of like in tune with making sure that that person is comfortable and okay, that everything else around you sort of stops, right? Until this situation is over. And then, even when that situation is over, because it shapes you so much as an experience, it actually never goes away, right? So, you know. Yeah, so I think I went through that process. We came back, he, he passed away. And as I said, I was at a crossroad and it was like, do I stay here or do I go back to the States? And I think everyone expected me to pack up my things the next day and yeah. move back to the States. That, that was everyone's expectation. And, you know, sometimes when I do tell this story, I do say this story because the decision-making for me, yes, that, that was definitely what I was leaning towards, right? But the question I ask myself is, okay, I'm grieving, and I don't want to sit at home every single day. You know, like if I move back to the States, I'm going to have to look for a job. I'm going to have to go through that whole process. And I just wanted to be busy. I just wanted to be busy. I didn't want to think about anything. So my decision to stay in Nigeria was not selfless. You know, I don't want to give myself this thing like, oh, you know, this is where he passed away and that's why I wanted to stay here. No, all I kept thinking about was if I go to the States, I have to sit at home. And my, you know, my family's going to be like, oh, sorry, every single day, you know, while I'm looking for a job, I'd rather be here and be busy so that I can start to just not focus on it so much. And that was the decision. That was, was a pragmatic decision. decision. It was a pragmatic decision. And the only thing I did was that I left the job I was at. Like, you know, I moved on from um, what was then B-Mobile, I think. Um, I just, I needed a change of some sort. So I did move on from that and moved on to uh, a different company and role. Um, 
And that was one of the best things I did. I think it, you know, it was it was time for me to move on anyway, and so I did that. Um, and the rest, they say, is history. Right. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a good way to segue into the next question about your career move. And I'm fascinated with the fact that you've been in internet marketing since 2001, right? Mm-hmm. That's like super early days of internet marketing. I want to know your view about the significant changes that has happened since then. Uh, with regards to how brands and businesses now uh, acquire <laughs> and retain users and build community and budgets and these and the difficulty of doing so. And mm-hmm. Because you've been involved in this and you are also CMO uh, for, for a long time. So yeah. I just want to get your view about what has changed uh, for good. <laughs> <and> for <laughs> well, let me, when I was uh, working in internet marketing uh, for KPMG in, in 2000 or 2001, just so you understand, first of all, uh, <laughs> my email address at the time was Chenna at Hotmail. So I had like, uh, you know, like one of the first users of Hotmail back then, which no one uses now. But, you know, um, and also internet marketing for us at the time was us sending emails to <laughs> to clients. That's you it. know what I mean? That's what it means to do internet marketing. <laughs> Just send emails to clients. They have email. Email, exactly. <laughs> so during the like, you know, email marketing and that was a hot thing then and all of that. But you know, fast forward now and uh I think one of the best decisions I made was to uh last year work with Facebook because the growth of internet usage in Africa has been like phenomenal, like how quickly it has grown. If you think about the fact that in two thousand one in Nigeria, nobody was really using the internet, like seriously, right? And then you look at what's happened in uh, 2018 and people will literally die if they don't have the internet. You know what I mean? Like it's, however, in Africa, it's still less than a third of people using the internet, by the way. You know what I mean? So we look at countries like uh, maybe South Africa and Nigeria and Ghana, um, they're not 100% penetration on the internet in these countries, but on the face of it, you know, it looks like everyone's using the internet. And it's not. Like, you know, it's still less than half of Africans have ever had access to the internet or have ever used the internet. Yeah. So it's, the growth has been phenomenal, but there's still a long way to go. And it's amazing because, as I said, technology has become an equalizer in the sense that, you know, knowledge is available to everyone. People can learn things online. They don't actually have to go somewhere to learn it. And so for those people who are extremely proactive and very interested in learning, this has been the best thing that's ever happened to them. But we still, there's still, there's still so much to do in sort of making sure that that access is available to more people because it really changes the dynamics of the country where people have this access. And you, you see it in Nigeria, you see it in Ghana, um, you're beginning to see some of that in DRC. I'm in Liberia right now, we're sort of at the sort of beginning stages of this, where you know the country is now saying the government wants to digitalize their own processes. I'm definitely pushing that in my own organization. And I'm very keen to see more Liberians and more women in Liberia very involved in technology. Because I think that that will help accelerate all the things that the country is looking to do. Well, how does that change uh, things for businesses in terms of their marketing? Because I know uh, in Nigeria, or most part of Africa, about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if you want to do marketing, if you want to launch a new product, uh, you have a few options. A newspaper, a billboard, (laughs) money on that, TV, radio, 
word of mouth or leafleting and mm-hmm. all these large deals all over Lagos where they passed all over the world and stuff like mm-hmm. Hollywood does that a lot and a lot of churches. And, but now it has changed. So <laughs> people cannot use WhatsApp and social media. And it means that businesses have to think differently in terms of how they push their product. But more than that, they have to engage from the beginning. They have to engage customers from the beginning about yeah. how the product be, uh, should be built because it's not too great thing. The consumers can actually talk about the product immediately. They get feedback immediately. Yes. How is that changing for businesses now? Is it difficult for them now to build products or, or and understand what people want because like before they can just close themselves in their, in their lab, do something and then push it out into people's stores. Exactly. I think what has been difficult for businesses is seeding control, right? You, you don't actually have control any longer about, because marketing used to mean that you create perception, right? To some degree, right? So you create a product, build a whole advertising campaign around it because this is the perception that you want people to have about this product. Today, that's very different. And I think it's kind of interesting because it's sort of like you're doing this sort of like, it's a double-edged sword for marketers, especially in Africa, because you have, on one hand, very tech-savvy, internet-savvy consumers. On the other hand, consumers who are less so. And you're having to build (laughs) for For two words. Yeah, exactly. For both. So I think what's interesting is that there's certainly still a role to some degree for traditional media. I mean, that's not, I mean, even in the States, people still do TV ads. So that, you know, there's still a role for traditional media. It's just that the role of traditional media is changing. Digital, um, the way that we speak to our consumers also has to change. I think it's forcing a greater level of authenticity, uh, I think, from from the companies. And the companies that are smart are doing things that are very interesting. So, for instance, um, when I was in Ghana, we wanted to create a new um, proposition geared towards young people. And in the past, you know, we would have done some research, you know, the guys would have gone out into the field, done some research. Based on that research, we would have worked with the agencies and all of this. We would have come up with a product and we would have done some advertising. Blah, blah. And we were like, you know what? We had to do things a bit differently, actually, because young people at that time, you know, I said, you know, they're, they're very internet savvy. They're obsessed with using digital tools on their phones. And secondly, the minute that they've decided that this product is not great, then the product is dead on arrival, right? So you can't actually force anything down their throats. So what we did in that particular instance is that actually we did an open sourcing on the product, you know? Right? From not, the ideation stage? From the ideation stage? I, I, I yes, we did. We, so we open sourced not the way that you think of open sourcing, like, you know, we open up the product and everyone puts their bit. We open sourced where we created uh, what we called at the time Red Lab. And Red Lab was like, we brought in people from different universities in Ghana, right? They had an office in our building and they helped create that product. So it was the most difficult thing for our product managers because it was like, nah, you, you know, stay over here. You, you don't know what you're talking about, okay? So we are going to put, so they created the product. What was the product? They, it was called Vodafone X. Right. Vodafone X. They created the product. They basically shaped what channels we used. They shaped the go-to-market strategy. And us old people were just like, okay, 
Is that what you said? Okay. You know, like the, the only thing that we could do, um, into our input into that was, you know, like, what's our budget look like? You know, what's the budget for this <laughs> product? You know, and, you know, obviously like, you know, if we think that certain elements of it just went too far from a brand point of view, you know, because yeah. at the end of the day, it's still good from brand. So we put checks from that point of view. But apart from that, yeah. And the guys and that did it, were they part of Vodafone or you brought them in just uh, we brought for that them project? In. Wow. We brought them in. They were not working for us. And they were brutal. Like when we would bring stuff in there, they'd be like, that's like two years ago. You know, like, <laughs> why are you still using these words? You know, things like that. Who listens to this musician? Like, no. Oh, you know, what apps should we add to this? No, nobody uses this particular app any longer. That's old school, whatever. So it was, I call it open source, not in the, the way that people think of open source, like people could come up, but like that was our version of open source. And it's one of the most successful products for Vodafone to date, right? Wow. So I think that's, for me, that's the shift that people have to make as marketers. Like the approach has to be a lot more collaborative. Like, you know, you cannot sit in your boardroom and decide what consumers want any longer. You have to be very clear about the experience that that customer has with your product as well, because if it's not a great experience, people will hear about it and will turn off other people from joining. So, you know, as you, you already know, Facebook, Snap, Instagram, you know, all of these are very powerful tools for people to get their points of view heard. And so if you don't have a collaborative approach, if you're not talking to them in their channels, they're not invested in ensuring that your product is one that, you know, they, they idolize or they feel so strongly about. You know what I mean? Like, there's no investment there. And so they'll say it as they see it. And so, you know, the digital channels are particularly important in terms of ensuring that, one, we're speaking to them or we're communicating in the channels that they expect to be communicated to in, right? But they're also critical as feedback channels. I mean, another good example was... Uh, a few years ago, so while I was in Ghana, I made sure that we started to put investments in our uh, digital advert, you know, digital advertising. So we had marketing budget. And in the past, you know, like anything that we did in terms of communication just sat in the communication budget and now, you know, made a decision to actually split out digital so that we could start to do stuff. Yes, we started to do things around that. And so our Facebook uh, page at the time we never really paid much attention to it because our assumption was no one's on Facebook at the time but then we decided to do something with our uh, fixed line product our broadband product and that was when we knew Facebook was alive I mean there was nothing that they didn't you know say about us and do to us on those channels wow. and the reaction the initial reaction from the company was like shut down the Facebook page because, you know, it was... You can't control it. It's just yeah. too much. You can't control it. And I was like, no, like, you can't. You're going to make the situation worse if you do that. We actually now have to engage, right? And we need... To, so a lot of times we were responding online. We got phone numbers from some of the people and called them offline to talk to them. You, you see what I mean now? So now you have to engage and collaborate until it was fixed. And that's... I think the switch that companies have to make in terms yes. of your brand is no longer your own, you know, yes. like you're not in control anymore. And so the consumer is a part of your process. You have to acknowledge that you have to understand that 
you're going to have to always constantly be in conversation with them, which means that your conversation is uncontrolled, which means that you have to be more authentic. And I think that's the piece that a lot of our companies are really struggling with, but that's our new reality and we need to get in line with it. And I can understand that it is hard. When I was running my business in the UK uh, as well, my startup, uh, it was a food delivery platform and we get, uh, and you can imagine lots of things can go wrong with <laughs> delivering food or getting the order right or payment and stuff. And I, every Saturday and Friday night, and probably some Sunday night as well, I'm always very close to tears. I'm always fixated on the Twitter page because that's where I know if things have gone wrong. Well, customer service people will be there talking about it. If somebody goes on Twitter, it's almost like there's some armies of people waiting to like the content <laughs> about you and retweet right. it and just talk about it. And for me as a CEO and a founder, I take it personal. <laughs> so right. And you understand the initiative, let's just shut this thing down. Let's talk to people one-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> but I also realize that it could be good as well. When people talk about you, it's good. Exactly. Was, the, the situation is not bad until you make it bad so even a bad complaint can be turned around by the way you react exactly engaging in it and and that's one thing i learned then that's why i felt that uh, social media could be a force for good for for business Uh, apart from that just building a community online whether through Mm -hmm. social media or to your net to your email marketing or through everything you do content blogging writing Mm -hmm. uh, top leadership uh, event and building that community and goodwill online uh, could help businesses. But Absolutely. To the other question around, I think I have mo- one or two more questions about your role in the telcos. One of them is, what do you think, and this is not just telcos, but generally uh, working in a corporate, we, we mm-hmm. I, I worked in a startup and we see you guys as, as the Navy. You are the corporate, right? You work for big companies. Even though you might think that you're a technology company, but you're not a tech startup. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> Navy. Uh, but what do you think about the innovation movement around that corporate world where a lot of corporates like banks or telcos are now getting involved in either directly investing in startups or trying to get startups in like you did with your open source stuff but getting them in acquiring startups or getting engaging in some innovative things even though in my opinion it's a bit slow the way they're doing it and now i have to do with the father you have to be careful about your shareholders your perception sure. of the marketplace and the legacy traditional stuff that you have. So what is your view about how that is going? But more importantly, what are the risks of you, of telcos not moving as fast as yeah. the market is like a young guy who in his bedroom can do something that would potentially fatally threaten business, the business you are here now in the next 20 years? Yeah, I think, listen, I remember, I won't mention the company, but I remember when um, some of these social media tools were coming up and um, the company I worked for at the time didn't want us to do any partnerships with them because in their mind, you know, they were taken away from our business, right? Um, and so it was just like, don't ever advertise anything with them, this, that, and other, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward now, like five years later, five, six years later, guess what? We're sitting at the table with them because, you know, at the end of the day, it's become part of our ecosystem. Some of these apps have become part of our ecosystem. I, my thing is this, like, you cannot control what the customer does right and so the best companies the best companies have a very strong understanding of the customer behavior what they're doing you might not like it you might not be happy with the direction the customer is going in but that, that's the way they're going and if you are not willing to understand that 
and you're not willing to grow with your customer, you'll get left behind. That's just a fact. So I think there was an initial sort of resistance, I would say, to the reality that we see today, right? Which is, you know, the OTT players are here to stay. And, you know, we're the ones that were pushing people to use data, right? Well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> they're going to use data. They're going to do all sorts of things with data. Well, we were, and I think, you know, in hindsight, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You're pushing data, but did we understand where the internet was going? Probably not, right? Because if we did, we may have done things a bit differently. All the things that we're doing today, which I think actually are the right things, like, I think we can't just be a dumb pipe, right? In the sense that people just use our product and they use it to do more important things, right? We have to be part of that ecosystem properly. And so I completely agree with the things that people are doing now, some of the telcos are doing, which is, you know, like, you know, NTN and uh, some of the other operators are very invested in, you know, what's what's a digital future? And they're investing in some of those companies that they think are going to become very much part of the ecosystem going forward. MTN in Ghana, for instance, they, they have an MTN app competition um, as well because they, again, it's, it's about making sure that you're at the forefront of what being able to serve your customer needs because otherwise you become irrelevant, right? So you, you have to start making some bets. You know, what are the things that people are going to fundamentally need in the future? And how is the digital space going to address those needs? Now, we as telcos are not experts in that. We should not try and do things that we're not great at, but we should partner or try to acquire those who can. Do you understand? Like, I, we've gone through the, the iteration of so many telcos trying to create their own Facebook, their own version of Facebook, or their own version of WhatsApp. But guess what? You're not software engineers. And so you, you will not be able to do that. But you can partner with or you can acquire those kind of companies to ensure that it is within your ecosystem because your consumers need that. And so you, you want to make... Amazon yeah. affect your viability? and Because I can understand from the moat perspective that we need to create a moat mm-hmm. so that we don't become a uh, blockbuster, right? And then, <laughs> Correct. Um, so how do you manage that? Uh, having your own moat and being innovative at the same time, not giving away too much. But I don't, I, well, I think at some point we become one. Right. I, I think that at some point, you, and this is why I fully support the acquisitions and, and all of this sort of like inter sort of connecting that we're doing. I think at some point it's one and the same. Right. But the telcos still need to go through this transition. Look at what's happening in the States now. AT&T, you know, who did they just buy? And uh, Verizon bought Yahoo. Why? They're not crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they recognize the fact that we're going to have to become one. It's not... Verizon and Yahoo, you know, it's going to be, it's all going to be intertwined and, you know, it's going to become a consumer comes here and they have all of these experiences. You use our data and on our data, you go onto this platform and you go into that platform and all these platforms may sit within our organization or we are connected to it or we've partnered with it, but it's one space, right? And they don't, it's a seamless experience for them. They don't see it as different. Because that's the way the consumer behaves now. They're not saying like, oh, I'm on MTN internet and then I'm using it to go to Uber and then I'm using it to do... That's just their experience. That's just how they're living, right? It's so you just want to... It's as they live, right? 
And I think that's the thing that um, the telcos are beginning to understand now. So as they live, yeah. what's the ecosystem? How do we build and expand that ecosystem so that it's all happening within this space? The last time I had a chat with you a few weeks ago, you mentioned something around with your new role now in Liberia. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to move the company to think that or a telco, MTN, is a platform rather than mm-hmm. just an utility store. It's a platform that you, other people can build stuff on. There are two questions that I have on that, for that. I think in Nigeria, most of the, the telcos are like, pla- actually, I'll say they're more than platform. I think everything is so powerful. Everything tends to run on telcos in Nigeria. And I remember mm-hmm. when I started going to Nigeria three years ago, and I will be ideating things that we can do with friends. And they will say, oh, yeah, you only can do massive distribution of this kind of stuff through telcos. And mm-hmm. it cannot go past telco in terms of mass distribution. Then it becomes so powerful. And so what do you think will have to change in Liberia in terms of that to make it a platform? And But the second thing is, which is coming from my own perspective as a startup, uh, I call myself a pirate. You guys are the Navy. We're always trying to find a way of mm-hmm. whether you want to acquire the pirate, but <laughs> we're always finding a way of undermining you. What do you think is the biggest threat to telcos in Africa generally? Yeah. So okay, so the first question, um, I think for Liberia, so I, I keep telling people, like people call me, like, how are you finding it? I'm so excited about, about Liberia. Like, it's well positioned now to really do amazing things. You know, like all the things that have happened in the last year, you know, like the tra- peaceful transfer of power. So, you know, that's, you know, people were a bit nervous about that. There were no issues. It's happened, you know. President Weir is in power. Just recently, they announced, you know, the approval of a billion-dollar loan to focus. That's very focused on infrastructure projects within the country. Wow. You know, that's I talked about. Yeah, jobs. that's going to ch- that's changing so much. Exactly. Wow. Um, I talked about um, digital Liberia. So the government is very focused on, you know, how do we digitize our own processes and our own behaviors and all that. So all of that is happening. And the question for me. And the important thing for me is to make sure that MTN Liberia is front and center of all of the things I've just mentioned, right? Um, Again, you know, the thing for MTN, like our strategy is about making our customers' lives brighter. That's strategically what we look to do. And so a big part of that is exactly what we're talking about. I want to make sure that we're creating a platform where people are living their simplest and most seamless lives, right? Because we want to give them time to do things that are really important to them. So mobile money, you know, like how do I get money, you know, that I need to do things during the week or to pay people? Mobile money is at the front and center of that, right? Because we want to make sure that people have not just financial inclusion, but are financially empowered. And mobile money is key in driving that. We want to make sure that, you know, we are creating much more usage of the internet across the country because we know how the internet empowers people. But we're going beyond that, right? Which is, we want to make sure that we're creating a wide enough digital ecosystem within Liberia as well. And so there are a number of partnerships that we're exploring today. But it first starts with us. Like we internally need to make sure that, you know, we're walking the walk that we want Liberians to walk as well. Interesting. Uh, so there's a lot of work that we're doing about making sure that internally, like we're working in a way that is going to be a mirror to how we want Liberians to live in the future. What do you mean by that? Is it that well, to be more digital in the operations? Yes, ab- absolutely. You know, we want to sort of make sure that 
everything that we're doing is done in a way that is simple and simplicity is brought about by digitalization. Um, you know, like, so everything from, you know, how do you take your holiday, to your vacation time to, you know, how do you order your lunch to, you know, all of that, you know, we want to make sure that we try and create processes around that. That is like a one step. I don't want to see any more forms. I don't want to sign off on anything because that's, that's the okay, past, so right? Okay, so things on paper yeah. at the moment, everything is done by paper and stuff. Some, I think it's a mix. So some things are done on paper, some things are done online. And I want us to go sort of like over-index on the other side. You know, like I think we, we should... We say we're a technology company or we're a telco by inference, we're a technology company. But we need to make sure we're living that life, you know, internally. So there's a, a huge project around that. But I just think that, you know, again, we have such a, such a big role, you know, in terms of helping to shape the future. We have so many people sitting on our network, right? A lot of people use communication as a tool today. So many people communicate. So we, we have such room to help people create bigger futures for themselves, right? And that's the one reason why I'm so passionate about technology. You know, they're are small stories and they're big stories. You know, I tell the story all the time about while I was in DRC, there was a lady who started a business because on Instagram because she was looking to lose weight. And she started, you know, showcasing her journey of weight loss. From there, she started talking about, you know, what sort of food she was eating, what kind of exercise she was doing. And then she started having people ask her, well, could you help me with my weight loss journey? She started having clients, paid clients. She lived in Brazil. She was Nigerian, living in Brazil. She had clients from different parts of the world, okay? Like, so she would help them with weight loss tips and she would monitor their exercise and she would monitor their diets and all of that. So she had clients. And from there, she wrote a book. And from there, she started doing seminars. Interesting. And it all wow. started because she wanted to document her weight loss journey on Instagram. You see what I mean? Yeah. That's so powerful. One person did that. There's so many smaller things that people can do to empower their lives just by using the internet. And so I want everyone to have that opportunity to make their lives brighter. I think that MTN has a key role in making that happen. And so I'm extremely passionate about making sure that everyone in our business understands like what power we have to really make Liberians have such bigger, meaningful lives because we're enabling them to fulfill their dreams, dreams that they don't even know that they have today, right? Uh, because the lady I spoke about, she didn't go online trying to lose weight because she wanted to write a book. That was never even something that she ever thought about. But her journey through Instagram brought her to that. You know, so he, you spark something by giving people tools to sort of empower them. That's what I want us to do so as a company. As a platform. And exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And the second part of the question was, what's the biggest GC to um, telcos in Africa going forward? Listen, I think, you know, there are two things. So I think one threat could be self-inflicted. And the second is like just the environments that we operate in. You know, I think in Africa, there's still some risks in operations. One is around cost. So if you look at somewhere like Nigeria, you know, uh, 
where a lot of companies still have to run on gen sets 24 hours. There's massive costs involved in running a business in many parts of Africa. There's still many parts of Africa where the infrastructure is subpar, so moving things from one end of the country is really difficult. When I was in DRC, for instance, like we really wanted to expand our network. But the cost of going from one end of DRC to the other where you had to go through Kenya and then Rwanda and then come back into DRC. You can imagine that that creates a, you know, a huge difficulty for us just in terms of trying to sort of operate. So I think one of the big risks for us is around cost. The second is around regulatory. You know what I mean? Like I think in each country, the regulatory regime is, is different depending on what the issues are of the day. Um, in, in Liberia, for instance, I find, you know, the regulatory to be very open. Um, so I'm really appreciative of that because I've worked in other countries where it's been a little more challenging. And so I think, you know, each of the countries in Africa have, like, it, depending on what the situation is in that country, regulation can be a risk to the way that we operate. And so those are two key areas where, you know, you tend to spend a lot of time. Like, how do we make sure we're a lot more efficient in countries where, there's some costs you cannot run away from, whether it's, you know, the cost of transportation or the cost of energy and fuel, right, and infrastructure. Um, and then the second part is around the regulation. The, the third risk is where I said it's a bit more self-inflicted, which is the risk is if we don't move quickly enough. I think there's always this assumption that in Africa, like, ah, oh, you know, things are not moving so quickly. And, you know, so therefore we don't have to rush, you know, in terms of innovation or sort of, th we don't have to think ahead of the customer because it's an assumption of what the African consumer looks like. And I'm speaking about this, especially if you're a multinational, you know, like sometimes you're trying to have conversations with your home office, maybe they're in London, maybe they're in America, and there's a disconnect between what they understand is happening in Africa and what you understand being on ground that's happening in Africa. And so there's some of that self-inflicted risk that we're not moving in step or maybe slightly ahead of the customer. Yeah. Um, and so therefore we sometimes put our own businesses at risk or now finding ourselves having to react after the fact to something that we could have planned for, you know, from a future point of view. And that I think can be a self-inflicted risk to some of our businesses as well. Yeah. My last question for you, I know we spent a lot of time now is, <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't forgive myself if I don't ask that question, which is, you're known as the turnaround lady, right? You can turn around person in Vodafone in Ghana to go in DRC. And now I'll say you parachuted into to, to MTN Liberia to do it. And I think this turnaround is not just for small startups, for big companies with entrenched mm -hmm. control. What is the secret of this? How do you turn around a company that is second or third in the market share and then move up um, without spending too much money or without just throwing all of the money at it? What do you do and just to educate people about that? How do you turn around stuff? The biggest thing for me, I think it's two things, right? So one is what I do try to do, or well, I'll tell you what I do. I don't know if it works for everyone, but... Um, I try not to go into the organization with bias, right? I think because you want to go in with a you know, new set of eyes, right? And so it's, it's important not to sort of listen to like, oh, you know, everything is crazy or the people are... Like, don't listen to that. Like, I think you have to go in with a clean slate, you know, just to go in to see what's going on. So that's number one. I think 
normally you want to go into a company with as much information as possible because you want to be as prepared as possible. I have a very different approach in turnaround situations because I want to shape and form my own opinion going in. So I don't want too much information uh, before I come in. So that's number one. Number two is that now means that when I come in, I spend the first four to six weeks going deep into the organization. Like I typically will, you know, if it's an operations that has many regions, I will visit every single region. I speak to our employees in depth. I have like department by department sessions, you know, no pressure. Just present to me what you guys are doing. I want to understand. I speak to our suppliers. I speak to stakeholders. I speak to um, government officials, you know, and try to create an understanding of how the business is operating how people perceive the business, how do employees feel, how are employees behaving? You know what I mean? And that, I think that sort of end-to-end holistic sort of deep dive into the organization now gives me the platform and the foundation to say, okay, here's what's wrong and here's what we need to do to fix it. And so usually within the first uh, two months, as I've now done here as well, I've typically put together a strategy for the organization to say, all right, here's what's wrong. Here's what we need to do in the next 12 months. And here's our five-year plan. So that's usually completed, usually between month two and three. The third and the most important thing is while you're new, you have every opportunity to make the changes that you want to make. So make the hard changes early and make go deep. You know, like while don't do the cosmetic while you still have the political capital. Like if you need to do a redundancy, get it done. And also like when you're making those kind of hard decisions, go deep. Do not do cosmetic. Don't create a situation where you'll have to do it again in another year or so. So For example, you know, if you've decided that the organization is too heavy, that's fine. You know, like, you know, when we were in um, Ghana, for instance, I think at the time we came into the organization, it was the one, our organization was the size of all the three other operations combined. So clearly, (laughs) clearly it was a heavy organization. And my boss at the time, did a proper redundancy program. They went deep. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, okay, we're just going to shed a few jobs. Like they did it properly the first time around. So if you're going to have to make these kind of decisions, you know what I mean? Like go deep, go hard. So you, you remove the pain. The pain is gone. And people know that, okay, this is our way forward. You know what I mean? Well, a new sheriff is in town and we need to make some changes. And once we finish these changes, then, you know, there's stability and we're going to build from here. The worst thing you can do is just create sort of insecurity within the organization, right? So all the tough decisions need to be done and done hard early so that those people who remain, whether it's your suppliers, your employees, your stakeholders, because there'll be changes all around, right? Those who remain know that you're all in this together to build a new, stronger organization. And so those are the three things I would say that I am very passionate about. Um, And I think the last point is once you've made those changes, putting in the discipline to ensure that you don't sort of start creeping backwards because that's really easy. So I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen in organizations where 
you've done a redundancy, right? You've cut your organization by 50%, for instance, and you've shown cost savings because, you know, this organization has been reshaped. And then a year later, oh, we've had to hire this person, or you, you know, this person's coming. And you see that creep, you know, back to the original size of the organization. So the thing is, like, making sure that once those hard changes are made, that you've put in place processes to make sure that there's discipline within the organization, not to sort of creep back to old behaviors um, as well. And there's also and then, training people so that they can do more with less rather than... Exactly. exactly. Oh, I need extra body now instead nope, of trying to see this nope. person can do more. Yes. I mean, we, you know, when I was in DRC, we had to go through the process of, you know, not just... So the redundancy is not just about people moving on. It's also about redesigning the organization right. and redesigning roles, right? So maybe somebody was doing, you know, you had five people doing one thing and now it's, it's one person doing five things. And so it's also meaning like you're redefining the job description, redefining what skills are required for that role. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a very detailed process and that's why it's important to sort of get that work done fairly early to ensure that there's a sort of foundation that you can build on going forward. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have the right people, you know, all your plans are for naught. Yes. And that's the way I see it, yeah. Good. That's a good tip about how to do it. I think it's like um, a restructuring or turnaround 101. And I think that there'll be other times, I'll surely bring you back again to the, to the podcast and <laughs> some other stuff where we can go deep into what does it mean to lead a large organization in multiple countries and stuff. But I'm going to end this conversation by asking you questions I normally ask my guests, which is a fire on questions. Full, no and it's just going to be one sentence or two to answer them. So the first one is, what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Business pain point, I think, is always about making sure that the organization has the right culture. You know, you'll hear me talk about people all the time. Like at the end of the day, I can make sure that we have the right cost. I can make sure we have the right investment in the business. You know, I think those things are easy compared to ensuring that the culture of the organization is the right one. A culture that drives performance, a culture that is one of, you know, almost... I don't know what the right word is, but you want your employees to be evangelicals of your own organization. They have to want to do so much for your organization to ensure it's success. So culture, um, and that's very much driven by, you know, how as leaders we drive the organization and how we treat our employees. Um, so that's something I'm keenly passionate about. And it's, I think, one of the biggest issues that one can have in a business. Especially when you're just coming from another culture, cultural, apart from business, coming from, mm -hmm. actually for you, it's two culture. You're coming from Facebook, which has a different culture. Correct. From another country into, into Liberia and then working in telcos, which might have some, some of its own inherent um, a legacy culture. And things mm -hmm. so trying to shape that community, mm -hmm. can be a pain. What is your number one growth metric? What do you measure now as a business to indicate that you're growing? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So I can give you the boring ones, <laughs> which is, you know, you look at your customer numbers, you look at usage, 
you know, and you, you look at those two things, you look at whether your ARPU is growing and those, those are the things that will give you an indication. Okay, is my subscriber base growing? Are my active subscriber numbers growing, right? Is my usage growing and all of that. The one thing that I also look at though, because I, I, again, I always think it's a, a leading indicator to some degree is just around the relationship between customer and brand. It really says a lot. I know, and I know that people don't like to hear the softer KPIs, but How I do you really think that? that, well, I think you can, you can measure brand affinity, you can measure brand engagement, you can measure MPS, you know, because this, this tells you how your customers are engaging with your business, right? And um, one thing I'm really happy about is that MTN is quite, you know, they're obsessive about measuring MPS uh, because it does say, you know, how people experience you as a brand, as a product, as a business, as a service. And if that's not tracking in the right direction, even if your other KPIs, usage, subscriber numbers, you know, active numbers are trending in the right direction, it's only a matter of time before they stop tracking the right direction because that satisfaction is not there. Is not being met. Exactly. So this is the KPI that for me says to me whether or not we're on the right track in the long term, regardless of what our financial KPIs are saying today. Yeah. So that's for you. So NPS is the big one. Just for the case, for the sake of people that don't know what NPS is, Net Promoter Score is one question that you ask your customer, how likely will you recommend this service or this product to your friends and family? And you measure that based on uh, nine to ten is the promoter, right? And seven yes. to eight are the um, the don't care people. Sure. Don't care. Less than, <laughs> less than seven is uh, are your detractors, and then it's a calculation yes. used to measure the NPS score by I think dividing the promoters uh, by, uh, by the detractors. detractors. Yes. And that yes. number indicates how much people love or prom- want to promote your product. So I agree with you because that shows the retention. In NPS itself, is a lot of inherent fact, retention, satisfaction, and usability, viability. Exactly. And, and if exactly. that is strong, then people, the, the financial, we, we follow that uh, one way or the other. Absolutely. I mean, and we track NPS you know, not just customer NPS, we, we track employee NPS, we track network NPS, you know what I mean? So we're, we're quite obsessed about ensuring that we have the right relationship with our customers. And again, like I said, like your financial metrics could show you today that things are fine, but if the NPS is something saying something different, then you do have cost to worry and you do need to fix things quickly. Good. The third question is, which book are you reading at the moment? Hmm. Interesting question. <laughs> so there are two books. So one is Homecoming um, by Yaa Ajas. I'm actually rereading that. Um, it's a, she's a Ghanaian author. And um, her story is basically tracking two women who were sisters back in the day. One was taken to the States um, you know, as part of the slave trade. And one remained um, in Ghana and just tracking the families that came from those two is it women. Is it true story or fiction? No, it's fictional. Um, but it's a fascinating look at, you know, the differences that these two matriarchs and their families went through just based on the fact that they had two different lives. You know, they didn't know each other, but they were sisters. And just, you know, how, how their families sort of ended up and where they ended up. And the differences in that, I, I think that was a very fascinating story. I'm also 
currently reading uh, Children of Blood and Bone it's a, by a Nigerian author as well. So I'm kind of very, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very into African, uh, you know, African writers right now. Yes. Uh, yeah, African fiction right now. And, uh, yeah. Did you read, did you grow up reading the African writer series books? Like, um, they were publisher of um, Things Fall Apart, No Longer mm-hmm. Teens. And, uh, I did. Of, um, the Arrow of God. And, yes. and all those books by, uh, by the Kenyan authors. And I grew up reading those <laughs> African writers, which is fascinating, actually. I did. I did definitely Good. when I was younger. Um, but then I think I went through this phase when I didn't read very much African work. But in the last three, four years, I've kind of, I don't want to say rediscovered it, but, you know, it's certainly, you know, been feeding my soul a bit more than some of the other uh, sort of genres, I would say. Go on, ask it. That's, that's awesome. Um, most of the time when I talk to busy CEOs, they always read this boring uh, non-fiction books like artificial intelligence or machine learning. But it's always good to see people reading fiction as well, which is fantastic. And I'm guilty of that as well. Most of the time I read non-fiction because I want to learn. But whenever I travel, and I do travel a lot, I always have with me sometimes a fiction book. Yeah. Um, like Sefia, yeah. that book I'm reading right now, which I've been reading for years, actually. I've <laughs> been <laughs> reading for years. I only read it when I'm traveling. But, but it's quite... The last question is, which business, apart from your business now, is getting you excited at the moment? Hmm. That's really, that's a very interesting question. I do have to say, so then I won't say it's getting me excited, but I'm, I'm intrigued, right? So... I've been watching Snapchat, right? And um, I remember a few years ago, like it was all the, the rage, you know, because, you know, they had the disappearing messages and people thought, you know, young people thought that was fascinating. And then obviously at the same time, Facebook sort of did something similar with Instagram stories and all that. But I'm really fascinated by Snapchat because somehow they're still surviving. If you listen to their CEO, they recently did an, he recently did an interview with uh, Recode um, and just talking about how they're surviving in spite of you know, Facebook sort of taking on their product and launching it and their values as an organization. So it's not so much that I, I mean, I use their products once in a while. I'm always very intrigued by organizations that have very clear values and very clear ideas about where they will not go and what they will not do and how they look to survive in a world that cares less and less about things like that, right? Because, you know, companies are very profit-driven. And so I'm keen to see what ends up happening with Snapchats. I, I am following them quite closely, just because it's sort of like this David and Goliath story to yes. some degree. And they have this sense of, we want to make sure we're doing the right things for our customers. And so this is the space we're going to be in. And let's see who wins this battle. So I would say I'm fascinated by that. And I'm, I'm following that quite a bit to see where this ends up eventually. That's good. I think that's yes. the last question. Uh, it's been super interesting. I knew this is going to be interesting when, when we booked this conversation. It, really took about, it took us a bit of time to get it going, but to fix this interview, but I know a lot of people will find it super interesting as well. So it's been great having well, you. thank you. And it's been awesome <laughs> learning a lot of things from you. So thank you very much for coming to the show. Thank you. And I look forward to our next chat. Yeah. Okay. Bye, that's now.
Building the Future podcast season three is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.